Let's read together the entire chapter 11 of Nehemiah. We're actually coming to an end. There's uh, only two more chapters left. We'll have a, a number, half a dozen or so messages left, I'm guessing. But uh, we're going to read through Nehemiah chapter 11 this morning. I hope you have the Bible with you. And if so, I invite you to uh, be o- have it open in front of you and to uh, put your finger down on the page or whatever it takes for you to follow along and listen carefully as I read to you. Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. This is sort of the opening of of the text. The rest of it, we're going to get some details of what just happened here. Verse 3 says, these are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. So we're going to get two lists, the descendants of Judah and the descendants of Benjamin, and then we'll get some priests and some other servants that worked at the temple. We're going to get some lists of people that lived inside of Jerusalem. Of the sons of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of the sons of Perez, and Maasiah, the son of Baruch, son of Kolhaza, son of Haziah, the son of Adiah, the son of Joarib, the son of Zechariah, the son of the Shelonite. Verse 6, all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin. Salu, the son of Meshulam, son of Joed, son of Padiah, son of Koliah, son of Maasiah, son of Ithael, son of Jeshiah, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hasanua, was the second over the city. Verse 10, of the priests, these are the priests that live in Jerusalem, of the priests, Jediah, son of Jairib, Jachin, Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Merioth, son of Ahitub, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work of the house, 822. And Adiah, the son of Jeroham, son of Pelaliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Pashor, son of Malchijah, and his brothers, heads of the father's houses, 242. And Amasai, the son of Azarel, the son of Azai, the son of Meshulamath, the son of Immer, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagodalim. Hagodalim. Verse 15. And of the Levites, here's the Levites that lived in Jerusalem. Shemaiah, the son of Hashub, son of Azrakam, son of Hashabiah, son of Buni, and of and Shebathai and Josedad of the chiefs of the Levites, who were over the outside work of the house of God. And Mataniah, the son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. And Bakbukiah, the second among his brothers. And Abda, the son of Shemua, son of Galal, son of Jeduthun. All the Levites in the holy city were 284. Verse 19, here are the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talman and their brothers, who kept watch at the gates, were 172. And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. So there were some of all the lists I just read that lived outside the city as well. Verse 21. But the temple servants lived in Ophel, and Ziha and Gishpah were over the temple servants. 
The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. And Pethahiah, the son of Meshazabel, and the son of the sons of Zerah, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. Verse 25. We'll finish the rest of the text here. Now, these are not lists of people. This next list are lists of villages outside of Jerusalem. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Dibon and its villages, and in Jechabzeel and its villages, and in Jeshua and in Molada and in Beth Pelet, in Hazorshual, in Beersheba and its villages, in Ziklag, in Mekona and its villages, in Enrimon, in Zorah, in Jarmuth, Zanoah, Adullam and their villages, Lachish and its fields, and Azekah and its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. Those are the people of uh, Judah, that, where the towns they lived. Now verse 31 is going to tell us the towns where the people of Benjamin lived. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward at Michmash, Aijah, Bethel and its villages, Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gitaim, Hadid, Zeboim, Nebalat, Lod, and Ono, the Valley of Craftsmen. And certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. Now we read the entire chapter. We had all lists of the, all these names. And we're going to have to figure out what are we going to, uh, what are we going to bring out or what are we going to talk about from this chapter. Now I'm going to actually jump back. I called this, uh, this uh, message I called Settling the Holy City. And I, I, I called it that because there's something that remains to be done. And I want to reach back a couple of chapters uh, previously to, to kind of clue us in as to why this chapter is here. Why we're talking about this chapter at this point in time. You recall, by the way, verse, or chapters 8, 9, and 10 we shifted gears, right? Up to that point, we had been talking about all kinds of external things that were happening in the city. They were building the wall and some of the changes uh, Nehemiah was making and all the things that were happening externally. Now in chapter 8, 9, and 10, things shifted to where we began to talk, talk about things that were happening internally, right? Suddenly they began to gather together and they read the Word of God. And as they read the Word of God, they realized they were making mistakes. And as they, as they realized they made mistakes, they made a big confession. They repented. They made a covenant and said, we're not going to do that anymore. Kind of like what uh, Jessica did this morning with us. She said, hey, I took Merlin seriously when you talked about this text last week. And I took an inventory of my life. Thank you so much, Jessica. Huge blessing. Uh, to, I, I think I said this a couple of weeks ago and it just gives me opportunity to say it again. I'm so blessed to pastor a church with people that really do want to follow Jesus and really do want to do what the Bible tells them to do. I, I, I know it exists probably in places, and I don't know how you would do it. I don't know that I could remain in a place like this very long to preach week after week, to put effort into what I'm doing, and to have a bunch of people that don't really want God to do that in their life. So thank you. Thank you for being a church that wants to follow what God wants. Now we're going to see in chapter 11 that the emphasis or the focus turns a little bit back to some external things. However, we're going to see that the external changes that we're going to read about in the last couple chapters here were really informed by or they come about because of the covenant, because of the confession and repentance that they just made. So there's going to be some changes. And I'm going to take us back to, all the way back to chapter 7, verse 
Turn my clicker on. Chapter 7, verse 4, because this is before we started reading about the internal changes, to point out a line to you. I, I know usually my, my, my sort of my main like launching points are actually from the text we just read, but I'm going to take us back to Nehemiah 7, 4. When, this, when the wall got finished being built, and now we had a city with a wall around it, it was pointed out to us that the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Now, that's where we actually ended a text. It's been a little, a little while ago. And we started the next text with, with Nehemiah gathering the people together. But I want you to see this morning that what God was doing when he began this internal work, he had something else in mind. The very next verse we read, by the way, verse 5, says, Then my God, Nehemiah speaking uh, first person, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by their genealogy. So recall, that's where they gathered them all together in, 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 in the squares they came in and they, and they wrote down who all these people were and whether they really were part of, of the Jewish uh, nation or not. We saw that God did that to bring them back and expose them to the Word of God, which I maintained was why He did that. But a secondary reason was to answer what was just happening in verse 4. You had a big city with a nice wall around it, maybe not perfect yet, but a nice wall around it, but almost nobody lived there. It was empty, and they were beginning to see that that was a problem. You can't be the people of God with the city of God, with the temple of God, and where His presence dwells, and nobody's actually there. Somebody has to be there in the city, be there with the temple. Some, somebody has to want to be there where the presence of God is, where the central focus of God is in, among his people. And this was a problem. And as he gathers them and exposes them to, to the word, they begin to see that need in, through different eyes, which is why we read the very first verse we read today. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people who had all been living out there, look what they did. They cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained out where they were at, out in their other towns. They agreed among themselves. Now, I don't know how your brain works. Maybe you're checked out and thinking about this stuff already today. Hopefully you're not. I don't know how your brain works when you start reading stuff like this. Are, are, you, are you tracking along with what, they're, with what they're saying and the implications of what they're saying and what that might mean for people like us today? They agreed together that, you know, we really should have more people living in the city of Jerusalem. We put a wall around it. It's where the temple is. It's where God's presence is. There really should be a more central group of people living here. But we all went out to the places where our inheritance was, where our towns were. We all went out to somewhere else. How are we going to solve this problem? Well, you already know how they solved the problem because you read the text, right? How did they do it? You tell me. How did they do it? They what? They cast lots. Do you guys know what casting lots is? What's casting lots? Someone give a, just give a brief, we don't need to know, go details. Maybe you don't know the details. What's, what's casting lots? What does that mean? What? They, they, you could, a, a, a modern day of looking, they, they pulled straws, right? It's like, so how many people went to live in the city? Let's, let's figure this out before I, before I go on with my example. How many people went to go live in the city? 
10%, one out of 10. It's like when we had all of us and, and, uh, we, and, the, and we, we separated by, by families and then we said, we're going to put 10 straws out. That's what Joe, we're going to use Joe's analogy. 10 straws out. You're all going to come pick one out and the shortest straw, you're going to go live in the city. You're, you're going to leave your, your house behind back there and you're going to go live in the city. You all okay with that? I see a few of you chuckle or laugh because you're thinking about what, what, this, what this means. This is what they did, right? They said, hey, somebody's got to live there. How are we going to decide who? We're going to cast lots. One out of ten is going to go live in there, and the rest of us get to are going to stay out here. Now, some of this I want you to see is coming out of the commitment they just made. Last week we talked about this. They said, we are going to together as an entire community, we're going to take care of the temple. We're going to take care of the city. It, we're going to see it as a corporate responsibility. We're not going to say, well, you know, it, those people could go over there and take care of it, but I'm right where I'm at. I have a reason to be right where I'm at. They, they go take care of it. They said, we're going to together do this. So they together decided, hey, at least a tenth of every one of us should go and live in the city. Now, I have a few more comments or a few more uh, points of application to make about that, but I want to make a few comments about the rest of the text before I go on. So I'm, I'm going to just run through those. These are not major points in the text here today, but they're things I think we should notice. First of all, I want to point out that there is a similar list of names and people living in Jerusalem that you could read in the book of First Chronicles chapter 9 and that, in that chapter. I just listed the whole chapter. It's not, the whole chapter has a few other things in it too. Um, you don't have to go back and read that. You can if you want to. The, the, the list does differ slightly because the first list there in First Chronicles chapter 9 are those that came back with the first wave of exiles. Remember I mentioned at the very beginning there's three waves. The first came with a guy named Zerubbabel. And the first wave, that's where this list comes from. The names of the leaders of those people who settled actually in Jerusalem. This list is slightly different because it not only has the remaining members that would have come from there, but then the ones that came in the second wave with Ezra and the ones that now came in the third wave with Nehemiah, including the ones that just... Uh, drew the short straws, if you want to put it that way. The one that the lot just fell to that said you're going to move and live in the city. Minor point. I want you to see the next thing. is I have a list of some names there. As you see, we have some names of men there, but we have numbers there that it's far more than just men, right? These are not just men who by themselves are moving back and living in the city. These are men who took their families and lived back, moved the entire family out of their home, and maybe even more than, maybe extended family. Uh, one thing we often don't appreciate in our American Western uh, way of living is uh, most other cultures around the world uh, have a much more integrated extended family network than we do. Like, we think it's pretty much normal or standard that the people that live in my house are just my wife and I and, and our children. That's pretty much it. If you've done any kind of world traveling, you, you know that that's not the reality for pretty much 90% of the rest of the world. Maybe that's, I, I just made that up, so I don't, don't take that statistic. A lot of the rest of the world doesn't live that way. When we took our youth group, this is many years ago, but when we took our youth group, when Heidi and I were youth leaders, we took them to Nicaragua, and we, uh, they went, we went out in the campus, into the bush there, and, and, and stayed there. And, and one of the things there's, there's, the youth at that point uh, came home with was this this knowledge that we were in little tiny houses that most of us had kitchens and dining rooms that were bigger than the entire house. And they had at least three generations living there. And often they had maybe an aunt or an uncle or some other various people living in those same situations. You know what they really, actually what they pointed out about that, if I remember talking to the young people, was the fact that they were struck with how incredibly content and happy these uh, Nicaraguans were. 
though their kitchen and, I'm not their kitchen, the kitchen was in one little room off the side, but the, their dining room and their living room and their bedroom and every other room in their house was all the same room, actually. And the doors were always open and pigs were, anyway, that, that's a whole other story. But much of the rest of the world doesn't carry the sense that we have that when we say my family, I'm referring to a very small circle of people that happen to be directly like my descendant, like the next generation descendant, not my family as in my mom and dad and my wife's parents as well, and, uh, and maybe some aunts and uncles or cousins that have nowhere else to be. But these, they took their families and they moved. And I, want, I, I make this point simply to say that these were, I would call them pioneer men, but they weren't just pioneer men. They were pioneer men that were joined by their pioneer wives and their pioneer families to go to places that they weren't necessarily wanting to go to because they felt that's what was best for the people that they were a part of. I want you to notice another connection to the text we had last week. You know, in that text, we, they, one of the things they were emphasizing in more ways than one, they said, we will commit ourselves to give a tenth or a tithe of our stuff back to God. The first and the best goes back to God. Whether you're talking about our, our, our crop out there, we're talking about our, our, our animals, our livestock, we're talking about our children, we're talking about anything we have, our, our money, anything we have, we're going to commit, excuse me, we're going to commit that a tenth of that goes back to God for his service. And a very practical outworking of that comes in this chapter. We're going to give a tenth of our people back to God, as it were. They're going to literally physically move into the city and live and maintain and help uh, maintain the presence of the people of God in the, the city where his presence is. They gave a tenth of their people. By the way, interesting, because we often, again, make tithing a very personal thing, right? It's a very, it's a very narrow, defined, personal thing, like I give a tenth of my stuff or we my family gives a tenth of ours to the church and that's the extent of it. But they chose to see that the tithe extended not just personally, which they give their tenth, but then as a group together, they give a tenth to God of what God has given to them as a community, as a, as a group of people. You know, what would it look like for this church to say, we must make the first and the best tenth, at least a tenth of our stuff, be for God's purposes, whatever he wants. Not, it's not for us, it's for God's purposes. Those are things we can chew through. I want you to see also in this text we see yet again, I don't make a lot of comments every time it pops up, but I love reminding us all the time that there are always, always, it doesn't really matter what Bible text you're reading, by the way. You can just about, in just about any uh, Bible text, if you read any amount of verses, you're gonna see evidence of God's sovereignty. In this particular text that came, uh, well, there's other places we can find it too, but in this particular text, the first one that jumped out to me, the biggest one, came towards the end of the chapter. Did you catch the little reference that said that, they, that there was an overseer, this is in verse 22, excuse me, verse 22, uh, there was an overseer of the Levites, and he was over them, and one of the things he was supposed to do was take charge of the house of God. And it says in verse 23 that there was a command from the king concerning them, and, and for a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. And I don't know what, what, what went through your head when you read that, but what king are they talking about? Does Israel have a king? Does Israel have a king? No, they don't have a king. They're a group of exiles. They don't have a king. What king are they talking about? It's like the king of, of the country where they came from. Artaxerxes is his name. 
And if you go back and read in Ezra, I gave you the reference in your handout. Uh, go back and read in Ezra, I think chapter 6 and chapter 7 both make mention of it. He actually sent them back and made a requirement that the people of the land around them and that they have provisions for their worship. Now tell me how it happens that a pagan king went out of his way to make a decree that the worship of a God that he himself does not worship is that that worship is provided for. How likely is that? How often does that happen? I'll tell you how often it happens. It only happens when God is involved, the one true God. And he does that, and we see God's sovereignty. He sent Ezra back, and he sent Nehemiah back, and he says, by the way, I'm going to make sure that you know that your things are going to be taken care of for these Levites that had charge of, of the house of God, the, 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 the provision for these singers. We're going to make sure that they're taken care of by a pagan king. This is an example, just one example from the text of God's sovereignty. I want to make one more comment before I come back and just uh, tie some things together. Did you notice a couple of times, this is why I speak pretty boldly about these pioneer people. Did you notice a couple of times when they're referring how many people went and the numbers there? He uses this phrase that they were valiant or they were men of valor. They were brave. That bravery, I submit to you, not that it was any more dangerous to live in Jerusalem than it was out in the country. In fact, it might be the opposite now that the wall's done. But they were valiant of precious value. That's what that word actually means. They were of precious value because they were obedient to God. Because they decided that what they had, where they thought their inheritance was, was not worth more than what God was asking them to do. They uprooted themselves. You'll notice a theme is emerging from the text today. They uprooted themselves. They were willing to take, well, here's what I thought was mine and my, my little kingdom I'm building here with my land and my house. I finally got back to it, and, and I'm, I'm just getting my footing down. They said, oh, we'll tear up, and we'll, we'll move my family and go into the city where I don't have anything yet. For us today, maybe I could put it this way, because the, the, the same words actually apply. How many of you, I, I, could, I think I could say this pretty safely because of where most of us live. We're, we're a little rural country church. How many of you would look forward to moving to a city and living in a city? I know there's a few of you out there, but I would guess the vast majority of you would say, no thanks. Why? Now, I mean, we're not actually, I'm not actually entertaining a discussion necessarily on why that is, because we all have reasons and they may be different from each other. But I'm guessing a lot of us like our space. We don't like people right next to us. I don't know this is, you know, the main text of the, or the main thrust of the text. I'm not going to make that claim by any means. But do you think these people that we have listed here today, that their families went and lived there, do you think they didn't, they didn't care? They didn't want space, right? Ah, they didn't want to live on a farm anyway. I don't think it takes us a whole lot to start reading things like this and get a little uncomfortable with our Selfish attitudes sometimes. Because it is actually the main thrust of the text. Not that we have to move from country to city. But that we are like all of those people we read about in Hebrews chapter 11 that did not uh, count what they had as their own, something to hang on to, but they followed where God asked them to go. It's a theme all through scripture. Abraham left his home and 
went where God directed him to. Moses left the riches of Egypt and went and did what God asked him to do. Go right on down Hebrews chapter 11. For all of them counted the city that God built that they were going to as worth far more than anything they had here. And I'm reminded that we do get a little territorial, don't we? We do build a few of our own kingdoms, don't we? And we have in this list, this is why these people are called men of valor. I would say, I mentioned earlier, women and families, valiant people of precious value to God. By the way, would you not want your name recorded in something that's there for the rest of time and listed as a man of valor, as a person of valor? Would you not want that? I'd love that if someday in the annals of history, it would say, there, there was this Merlin Miller guy and he was a man of valor. Right? This is recorded. These people's names are recorded for the rest of time as having responded to God and what God wanted. Unlike what we sometimes are fed to us from the culture around us, you don't get that without making a commitment and responding and being obedient. You cannot, as the saying goes for us today, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You can't hang on to your kingdom and then have God list you as a person of valor, as valuable to him. This doesn't happen that way. I'm gonna finally get to verse two. Note that that does not mean we have a long time to go still. It means just the next verse I wanna get to. The people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. This comes right on the heels of verse 1 where they cast lots. They decided that one out of ten is going to go live there. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now, first of all, I want us to see the response of those that, uh, that uh, did not get asked to move to Jerusalem. And you might see to yourself or chuckle a bit and say, ah, oh, they probably all went, whew, that wasn't me. And maybe there was some of that. But I see here that there was a blessing there's a recognition that it could have been me, that God could have asked me to do that. And because he didn't, doesn't mean I get to say, ah, good, I get to go back to my kingdom now. It's to see that I am part of what's happening there and I'm blessing that to happen. But what I really want to key in again is this phrase here, willingly offered. It's the Hebrew word nadab, which you don't need to know that. But it's to volunteer or to, or to, uh, uh, to present freely, voluntarily give something. They willingly offered. And I want to, I, I, you know, there actually is some discussion about what that phrase means here in this verse. Was it that there were others who volunteered to go and not, they didn't have to cast lots, and they're referring to those, or was it that those who were willing to go when the lot fell to them, actually God considered them willingly offered it? I submit to you it's the second that I just said. That's, where, that's how I take the text. Because in that sense, it takes a willingness to even allow that to happen, right? If you're going to submit yourself to the casting of lots, then, then you have to say, I'm willing to have whatever outcome there is right? So you are willing. It meant that 10 out of 10 were willing. One was asked. Listen carefully, church, because we have got to get past this idea of saying, well, some are called and I get to sit here. All of us are called. Some may get asked to go somewhere else. And the people blessed all of those who willingly offered themselves to go. And now I will ask us to take some time to think about what does this have to say to us today? 
There's all kinds of things that go through my mind. I'm not interested, by the way, in saying we need to return back to become like these holy people back in Jerusalem, uh, back in uh, Nehemiah's day, and start using the lot again. I'm not asking about that at all. In fact, it has, uh, this text has little to do with me with the lot. I'm suggesting to us that the parallel for us is we need to get a whole lot more dedicated to listening to the Holy Spirit and being obedient to Him. That is how our lots get cast, if I can use that phrase. That's how our lots get cast, is when God in his sovereignty decides that I want you to go do this, or I want you to go here, or I want you to, to follow this path, and he tells us through the Holy Spirit. He prompts us that way. He, he makes our brains begin to think about these things. He maybe puts it on someone else's uh, tongue to say it to us, or we, uh, whatever it may be, we begin to get this sense inside of us, but it means we have to be paying attention to the Holy Spirit and not busy building our own kingdom and hanging on to our own stuff and saying, well, what I've got here, I, I, I can't possibly do anything else because this is taking all my time and attention. By the way, if all our time and attention is being taken by earthly things, then we are in a real problem, aren't we? A, we're not even hearing the Holy Spirit, but B, we've got even bigger issues than that. I'm afraid that we're not in the place we think we are with the Lord. But it's time for us to get a little more dedicated to being obedient to the Holy Spirit. That it really carries about as much choice as casting lots does. You understand, that's where that comes down to, right? They gave themselves willingly to God and said, we'll cast the lots, we'll throw the dice, and whatever happens, that's it. If it points to me, I'm going. If it doesn't, I'm, I'm staying. That's about how much choice we get when the Holy Spirit starts talking to us. Now, that's often not how much choice we think we have because we often think, well, I it may be saying this, but I can think of some reason not to. I can think of some excuse not to. I can justify something else. But we don't get any more choice than that. And there are plenty of places this comes out for us today. Actually, if I can tell you, the discussion about city versus country, while I said it, and then I said it, I don't think it means all of us have to move to the city. You understand that most of, uh, most of the people that are, live here in the U.S., that are godless and do not know Jesus and desperately need Jesus and are even what I would consider among least reached peoples or at least cultures from other countries that are least reached that live here in the U.S., almost all of them live in cities. You know, one of the things, I'll just, I'll just share a few things from my heart here. One of the things that our conference of churches has spent a lot of time talking about the last couple of years is in, in what it means to reach people or to plant churches here and many times when we're talking to our churches, uh, it, it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, the, the conversation just, just dies right away because most of us think, well, how, why are we going to plant churches around here? Like, there's a lot of churches around here. And I think that's kind of part of the problem is our vision is to only look right next door to us and say, well, there's already a church there. Where do people need Jesus? Where in the U.S. do people need Jesus? There's people here. Don't, I'm not saying there's not people here. But I can tell you there's a lot more in places that most of us don't like to be. Where are the intrepid, pioneer, valiant people of valor willing to leave their country houses behind and go to where the gospel is desperately needed? Where are those people? Would you be willing if we would cast lots and send one out of ten from this church somewhere else? 
I'm not planning on doing that, by the way. But, you know, that doesn't actually relieve us from the necessity to be willing, does it? I told you 10 out of 10 were willing. Had to be. Had to be. But it's not just going far away, overseas, some city, somewhere else. It's all around us. There are people who need Jesus right next to you. And it's not even just, so far I've, 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 so far I've limited that all the ideas to evangelism, and that's not even the whole discussion. These people weren't moving to Jerusalem to be evangelists, were they? They were going there to take care of the temple and to populate the city and establish an identity. Sometimes it just comes out. Sometimes the, the thrust of this text of being obedient to the Holy Spirit comes out more in, in doing what he's asking you to do here within the body, to fulfill a role of some kind, to be a teacher or to... Uh, influence young people in some way or to hang out with them or to do things. But, and, and all of us, or not all of us, many of us are like, well, I'm so busy. I have all this stuff. I, I... They didn't see a choice in this, did they? They didn't say, well, my, 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 my farm, I've just, I just built myself a new barn. and I've, I... They didn't say any of that. I don't know if that happened or not. I'm assuming some of it happened. In the end, I cannot tell you what it means for you personally, except to tell you that you must inquire of God through the Holy Spirit of what he wants from you, and then you should see, we should see ourselves as having no less option as they did this day with casting lots. I don't say this to embarrass, and I don't say it to necessarily bring pride or inflate, but I give you an example this morning of a young man sitting down here in the front. He has no idea I'm going to say this, by the way, so he might get a little, he's maybe a little worried right now. But Enoch, just the other week I asked him if he would read the text for us for foot washing at communion. And the answer I got back was, well, I mean, he admitted that he didn't really want to do it. But the answer I got back was, I looked for a reason not to do it, and I couldn't find any, so I said, that means I should do it. And I told Enoch in the parking lot outside I said, that attitude is so refreshing. It's what I wish many, many more would have in this church and in our churches. That instead of having to find a reason or a flashing sign that said, you should go do this, it's when I'm asked to do something by the church to say, hey, if I can't find a good reason not to do it, then I should do it. It may not be what I'm the best at. It may not be what I'm comfortable at. It may not be what I think, uh, whatever. I may be able to think of 100 other people that could do it better. But if I was asked to do it and I can't find some flashing sign that tells me not to do it, yeah, I'll do it. I don't know where this takes your mind or what. I, I'm always aware of the fact that the Holy Spirit does this so much better than I do through my mouth, and so there's probably lots of things that you can and should be thinking about that aren't my words, that are not something I'm going to say. I give examples, and I, I just can never give the whole breadth of everything, so I'm sorry if I didn't say anything that strikes you this morning. My confidence is such that the Holy Spirit will do that work for us. I'm convinced that uh, my statement of everyone else being called to be obedient to God and to be a representative of Jesus Christ in some way, some shape, or form is true for all of us. And all of us need to be willing to be that. It's just a matter of where the Holy Spirit is sending us. What is he asking of me to do? And my encouragement, as I've said about three times already, 
is that we see that we have no more choice than these Israelites did on that day. When the lot fell to them, they said, okay, we're moving to Jerusalem. God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I'm just aware this morning, Spirit, of your incredible, powerful witness here and your way of moving things in us and changing things in us that doesn't come by any other, any other way. I, I, I can get excited. I can speak passionately. I can, I can use clever phrases. I can make people laugh. I can make people cry. I can do all kinds of things, but I can't move them like you can, Holy Spirit. And I thank you for that. That, that. That's true. And I thank you that you were here and active this morning. God, I would pray. I would pray that we would sense the call to be your ambassadors. And I would pray that that would come with a willingness to do or go wherever you ask us to go. That we are found in a place where we're willing and ready whenever you say. Knowing that it may be far away, it may be medium distance, it may be close by, it may be right here, it may be at our job tomorrow, it may be in our house tonight. Those things don't matter so much as the willingness, the commitment, the absolutely unshakable, unwavering, pioneer, valiant effort or spirit that says, if you ask me, I will do it. I thank you that we can trust you, God. And I give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.